Ephesians chapter 6, and we're just going to look at the first four verses, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we read these verses, as we think about these verses, as we meditate on them over the next few minutes, Father, remind us that these verses are more than just tips for life. These, this whole section that we've been looking at in Ephesians is, is more than just how to have nice, happy relationships. There's so much more going on here and so much more that the Apostle Paul wants to show us, that you want to show us in your Word, just like the section that we read last week and the week before on husbands and wives. There's so much more going on than just, just how couples are supposed to get along, but, but there was something that you wanted to show us, an image that you wanted to show us, something about that relationship that points us to Christ. So it is in our parenting, our child parenting relationship as well, Father. So I pray that you would teach us this morning that we would hear and believe your word and that we would see Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a senior in high school, uh, I took a class. I can't remember what it was called, but they gave us um, a responsibility. They were trying to teach us responsibility, I should say. And they gave each student an egg. And we had to name the egg. And uh, we got to draw a little face on it or something. So kind of like what I'm doing here this morning. We, I drew a face on my egg, and I named him Dunga. Dunga was the name of a Brazilian soccer player. That's the only reason I came up with that weird name. And we had to walk around with this egg for a week. We had to take care of it. It was our child for the week. And do you, do you guys ever have a, a class like that when you were in high school? And you had, they actually uh, paired you up with somebody else. Now, everyone had their own child, but they, they married us, if you will, in the class. They paired us up with someone so we could work together. We had a partner in the, in the plan here to take care of our, our little egg. And so I had little Dunga, my egg. And if your egg broke, you lose a whole grade. I mean, whole, um, like you go from an A to a B. And then if you got a second egg and killed it, then you'd go from a B to a C. So I had Dunga. I really needed an, an A in the class. Um, this was my senior year. Uh, I was trying to get into college. And um, so I had Dunga, and I did a great job of taking care of Dunga. I made this nice little um, egg carton uh, sort of uh, bed for him. And padded it really well, and I had it set up to where he had a strap, or had a strap connected to the egg carton so I could hang it around my neck all week long, and I would walk around with Dunga around my neck. And, uh, and so I did a really, really good job until the last day. Matter of fact, it was about, I think it was two classes before, the last class where we were all supposed to bring our eggs back. I took Dunga off my neck and set him on this little half wall right near my locker and just set him there and reached over here to undo my locker, and someone walked by who had a backpack on and just barely clipped Dunga's little uh, egg carton carrier thing, 
And I had not latched it really well. And so that thing flipped over and Dunga went falling out. It was like slow motion. I just remember seeing Dunga fall through the air. And sure enough, he hit right there on the ground and it was all over the place. Dunga died that day. And I lost a letter grade. But I still got into college. Now, the whole purpose of the class was to teach us responsibility. And they wanted us to view these eggs as our children. And I kind of like the image that it gives us as we think about an egg here. This egg is fragile. It needs to be taken well care of. It needs to be protected. And those are some of the things they wanted to communicate to us about children. And um, I didn't really understand really what it was all about until I remember, I think it was, I guess it would have been August 10th of 1998 uh, after... Noah had been born a couple of days before, and we came home. And I remember Noah in his little car carrier thingy. And we come home, and we set that on our coffee table. And Heather and I sat down on the couch and sitting here staring. And there is this child in this car carrier. And all of a sudden, it just hits you. Oh, my goodness. That child is totally dependent upon me. That child is totally dependent upon me to take care of it, to feed it, to nourish it, to, to train it. And it was almost overwhelming. You just kind of have this overwhelming sense. You can't just do whatever you want anymore. Life is all of a sudden in an instant just changed. And so this morning we're getting in, we're continuing with Ephesians. And actually we're starting our last chapter of Ephesians. Where we've been working through the book systematically. We're getting now to the end of it. And we come to yet another relationship that Paul wants to talk about. And it's the child-parent relationship. Uh, Don't let the chapter division fool you because Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 and the verses that follow after it belong to the passage we've just been studying in the last two weeks on husbands and wives. These are all connected together. And of course that passage, Ephesians 5 22 uh, and, and following, that's actually very, very closely connected to the, to the verses before it because Paul's been making an argument all throughout Ephesians. And even as he gets to the application portion of Ephesians, which is the second half of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, even as he gets to the application portion, it is, it is closely tied to the, the doctrine that he taught us in chapters 1 through 3. So we come today to yet another relationship that Paul wants to talk about a relationship he wants to address in the light of our new community of faith that we belong to. All of our relationships have been transformed. All of our relationships have been renewed and made right in Christ. Everything should change. The way we treat one another should change now that we are part of a new family, the family of God. It's just for the sake of recap, you'll remember that we are in the application portion of Ephesians. He talked about three different walks, the walk of love, the walk of light, and the walk of wisdom. And when he got to the walk of wisdom, he gave us four different uh, marks of the walk of wisdom. And the fourth one was, uh, I mean, the third one was being filled with the Spirit. He gave us three marks. The third one was being filled with the Spirit, or walking under the influence of the Spirit. And then he gave us four marks of that, of what it means to walk in the Spirit. And the fourth one was this in verse 21 of Ephesians. It says we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a mutual submission out of the fear of Christ, out of reverence for Christ Jesus himself, that should be playing itself out in our day-to-day relationships. And last week, the last two weeks, we looked at 
how that affects husbands and wives. What does mutual submission look like in the husband-wife relationship? How do wives revere Christ? How do husbands revere Christ? And today we'll talk about how do parents and children revere Christ. If you remember last week, he said that wives revere Christ by following their divine calling to submit to their husbands by honoring and affirming his leadership and helping carry it through according to her gifts. She does this willingly, respectfully, and out of love, just as the church willingly and lovingly submits to Christ. The wife, therefore, finds her joy in seeing him succeed in his calling. And husbands revere Christ by exercising mutual submission in the sense that they heed the divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in their homes. He, the husband, is to love her as Christ loves the church. Christ submitted to the church by coming not to be served, but to serve. And so too the husband comes into marriage not to be served, but to sacrificially serve. The husband, therefore, finds his joy in her joy. But now, what about the other relationships at home? How do we see Christ-honoring, Christ-revering, mutual submission in the child-parent relationship? Well, that's where we're at today. Now, the relationship between parents and children, it's actually big business. If you go into a bookstore... Any bookstore, just pick one, go. You will find a very large section on parenting with tons of books. So I decided last night to go on Amazon and see how many books there are on parenting in, in Amazon. And it came up with over 60,000 books on parenting. Now I'm sure there's some repeats in there. I think it was 63,000 was the number. 60,000 books on parenting. Um, so here's some of the titles of some of, some of them. You, you know some of the books because some of them are some Christian books that you're familiar with. But here's some you may not be familiar with. Did you know Super Nanny has a book? Yeah, Super Nanny has a book. And you can get it on Amazon for, I think it's $19.95. Then there's the book called One, Two, Three, Parenting Magic. One, Two, Three, Bingo, Parenting Magic. Then the weirdest one I found, though, was one called Daddy Die Hard. It has a picture of a gun on the front. And what it is, it takes the character from Die Hard, I can't remember the guy's name, the fictional character, and uses him as a model for, for, for fatherhood. It, it says that everything a father should be is, it can be seen in this guy. All right? So it's called Daddy Die Hard. And uh, I'm sure you guys are going to be rushing out to buy it this afternoon. I have no idea how much it costs on Amazon. So with all this plethora of books and information about parenting that's available to us today, some good, some very bad, it, it, it kind of comes as a surprise to us, and maybe you felt this in your own life, that there's relatively little in the Scriptures, especially the New Testament, about parenting. Okay, there's only two direct passages that deal with the parent-child relationship. There's some things we can draw for some other passages, especially passages that teach us about the fatherhood of God. But directly, uh, ex direct exhortations to parents and children, we have Colossians 3, 20-21, and we have this passage that Deemer read this morning. Now, of course, there's, there's a good number of texts in the Old Testament that, that give us a lot of information about parenting. We can also see a lot of examples, especially of bad parenting, in the Old Testament. But outside of Deuteronomy 6 and, and the Proverbs, there's not a whole lot of direct teaching as to how we go about this task. 
as I'm sitting there with Noah in this little car seat on my coffee table, there's not a big thick book in the Bible just about parenting. Matter of fact, all the biblical texts about parenting could easily be collected in just a few pages. Yet, there's so much here in this text today. And really, it's so simple. It's so profound. Yet, it's also so difficult for children and for parents. Our sinful nature wars against these words. Our sinful nature has turned the parent-child relationship into a battleground. So what does Paul have to say about this relationship between children and parents? And how has it been transformed in Christ? Well, first he begins by speaking to the children. Now the fact that he speaks directly to the children is important for a couple of reasons. There's probably a lot of reasons it's important, but there's two that I thought of this morning. Number one, it means that children are present in the congregation. Same thing with Colossians. Matter of fact, these letters were also circular letters, which means that Paul expected the children to be present in all the congregations as these letters are being read. He doesn't say, fathers or parents, make sure your children obey. Make sure you communicate this to them later. He understands and uh, assumes that there are par- that are children present in the congregation. Now, We could go off on that, and I could spend a lot of time just talking about that, but certainly that is one of the reasons that my convictions changed several years ago in regards to at least the worship portion of what we do here, the collection, the gathering of the saints, the calling, the called out ones that gather together on Sunday morning should include the children, based largely on this text and some others. We see several places in the Old Testament where the children are listed as being present in the assembly of God's people. But the second thing here, when Paul speaks directly to the children, we see something rather revolutionary. Because not only could Paul have just spoken directly to the dads or to the parents, because, you know, maybe children weren't present, but he also could, even with children present, he could have spoken directly to the fathers and the parents, because addressing the children directly was revolutionary, because... In that culture, he didn't need to address the children directly. All he could have said was, dads, make sure your children obey. Just like I mentioned last week, he didn't have to address wives directly. In that culture, it would have been perfectly acceptable for him to say, husbands, make sure your wives obey or submit. He could have easily said that, but he doesn't because Paul's coming at this and he's looking at this from the perspective of these children and the wives that he spoke to last week are part of his family. They are part of the people of God. They are not property. They are not chattel. And therefore, they are to be spoken to directly as redeemed people who can make choices. The three lowest rungs in society in Paul's day were women, Children and slaves in that order. Isn't it interesting that this text here, Paul speaks directly to wives, children, and then he'll speak directly in the next passage to slaves. Paul views them as equals in Christ, his brothers and sisters. Therefore, he sets forth a revolutionary concept for his time. The gospel has put everyone on a level playing field, and in the Roman world this was utterly unknown. The Roman men, the Rome, Rome had a law that basically gave men, fathers, absolute authority over their children. They had authority to sell them into slavery if they wanted to. 
Matter of fact, when a child was born, they would lay the child at the Roman father's feet. And if he picked the child up, that meant the child was going to be kept. And if he didn't, if he turned away from the child, the child was to be discarded. Matter of fact, one Roman historian actually says that it was expected for good Roman men to expunge all deformity from society. And if a child was deformed, he was expected to walk away from it. If the child had any sort of deformity at all. That was the culture of the day. Fathers had absolute authority. Matter of fact, they had absolute authority over the death and the life of their child even after he was growing up in the home. Now, I've told you guys the story before. A lot of times what would happen when those babies were discarded, they were, they, they were, what it was called they were exposed. They were either just left outside or left where the trash heap was. And they would just be left there to be exposed and to die. And slave traders would actually come and scoop up some of these children and use them as slaves or prostitution. But also there were other people coming out to those trash heaps to scoop up the children. It was the church. The church became known for, the early church became known for rescuing children. The church today should be known for rescuing children. We just have a lot more high-tech ways to do what the Romans did. A lot more high-tech means of doing the exact same things that they did. So this was a revolutionary concept for Paul to speak directly to the children and to give them an exhortation directly from God's Word. So let's look at what Paul says to his little brothers and sisters in Christ. First, we'll see that Paul says children, that children must obey parents because it's part of God's natural order. So that's your first point today. Children must obey parents because it is part of God's natural order. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It is right. It is part of the natural order of things. Ever since the creation of the world, children have been expected to obey parents. It's the way God's order, God's structure works. Every culture, every civilization, with maybe a few exceptions here or there, has expected children to obey parents. You don't have to teach this. This is part of God's natural order. It's part of the way God created things. Every human knows this is the way society works best, even when he or she rebels against it. So that's the first point, is that it's part of the natural order. It's right. It's what children must do because it's the way God ordered things. But secondly, children must obey parents because... It's part of God's moral law. Children must obey parents because it is part of God's moral law. To back up his call for children to obey and that it's right for them to obey, he goes to the law. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. So he's quoting here from Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Not only has God so ordered things and so wired us that we know it is right, even when we fail to do it, for, for children to obey parents, he's also given us his law. Paul here refers back to Exodus 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy 5, 16. This is the first commandment with a promise. Now, you may look back at the commandments and say, wait a second, the second commandment looks like it has a promise too. But if you look closely, you'll see that the second commandment has a declaration of God's character. But this is the first commandment that has a promise attached to it. And the promise is this, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
Now, this is a general principle. We need to understand this. A lot of the Proverbs are like this. These are general principles for life. It does not mean there aren't exceptions. God is sovereign over life and death. Matter of fact, just on the way in this morning, we heard a story on um, the, the Christian radio station, The Fish. Um, we heard a story about a child who had passed away, and, uh, and it was just, he was apparently a believer, and, and how he had, um, uh, his life had affected a lot of people, and it was, just, it was an interesting story. But it just goes to show you that this is a general principle that Paul is talking about here. It doesn't guarantee, children, you're not guaranteed a long life just because you obey your parents, but it is a general principle. Why? Because, well, first of all, children who obey their parents are less likely to be in harm's way. Okay, how many times is, I mean, growing up, adults, there are times when your parents told you not to do something or to do something or whatever, and either you didn't obey and you almost got in some serious trouble. Maybe you did something dangerous. And you look back on it today and go, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I didn't get seriously hurt doing that. We know that we're less likely to be in harm's way if we obey parents. Also, children are spared bad habits and bad associations when they obey parents, for the most part. They're spared psychological problems and difficulties. But again, this is a general rule. And this passage could also be interpreted as a general rule for society. Remember, the Ten Commandments were given to the Israelite society. And living long in the land was part of what God's desire was for the community of Israel. Therefore, obedient children generally add a stable, a stabilizing force to society. Conversely, disobedient children lead to a more fragile society. So children are to obey because it is right. So it's the natural order of things, and because God has commanded it, it's part of God's moral law. But here's the problem. Children are born depraved. Children are born self-centered. Children are born rebellious and deviant. Children are born sinners. None of us in here had to train our children how to be selfish. It came very natural to them. None of us in here had to train our children how to complain and consider themselves the centers of the universe. It came very naturally to them. Disobedience to parents is part of the fallen condition of mankind. Listen to this text, children. Romans 1, 28 and following says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Romans 1 is a description of the condition of mankind. This is what all of us face. And so when you think about disobedience to parents, I get so sick of hearing people say, well, that's just what kids have to go through. That's just part of growing up. No, that's part of fallenness. It's in the same list with murder. It's in the same list with inventors of evil. So our children are little inventors of evil. Imagine these little mad scientists there. That's what they are. That's what we are too, apart from Christ. 
This is the description of the fallen condition of mankind. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them, is what the text goes on to say. They know what is right. Children know they should obey their parents. We know in society that obedience to parents is the norm. It's what's right. It's the natural order. But we cannot do it. They cannot do it. They know what God has commanded, but they cannot do it. They do not do it. Therefore, my last point is this. Children cannot obey without the gospel. Children cannot obey without the gospel. I have intentionally skipped over something in the text. Notice it again. It does not say, children, obey your parents, for this is right. It says, children, obey your parents, what? In the Lord, for this is right. In the Lord. This little phrase changes everything. This little phrase turns this text from being a text on just morality... Make sure your kids obey and turns it into something different. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This phrase, in the Lord, kind of like last week when we talked about wives submitting to their husbands in the Lord, or as to the Lord, it limits the authority of parents to a certain degree in that a child's ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Jesus, and therefore he or she is not called just to do anything a parent tells them to do, especially if that specific thing that they're being told to do causes them to sin against the Lord. But more importantly, this phrase, in the Lord, is telling us how the obedience is to be done. The only way a child can fall back in line with God's natural order and God's natural design And the only way a child can conform to God's moral standard is if it's been done for him by Jesus Christ, by one who was perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient, perfectly conformed to God's order, perfectly conformed to God's law, perfectly obedient to his Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only redeemed kids can do what Paul is calling on children to do here. It does not excuse children from obeying, but only a redeemed child can really follow Paul's commands here. This is more than external conformity to rules and external behaviors. Kids can do that. Kids can conform to rules and behaviors. The reason Paul goes back to the law and goes back to Exodus Because the law and the Ten Commandments tells us that children are to honor their parents. And honor carries much more weight than just good behavior and behavior modification. Honor involves something from the heart. Love, cherishing, caring for, and having a deep respect for and admiration for your parents. It's a heart word, not a behavior word. The reason Paul takes us back to Exodus... Back to the law is because he wants to show us that we cannot accomplish this just by behavioral standards. You may teach your children to sit and and, and not not do what you're telling them not to do, to, to do their homework well or whatever else, but inside their heart they may hate you to the core. Because honor is something that only comes from a transformed heart. 
And if it's there, then the behavior will come out. But the behavior can be there without the heart. The behavior can be there without the heart. That's why parents are called to minister to their children's hearts. Not just their behavior, but to their hearts. Fallen hearts are incapable of this. Only redeemed hearts honor the way the law calls for children to honor. Only the Spirit of God working in a renewed heart that loves the law and loves God can do these things. So kids, the application for you this morning as you think on this text is first of all, apart from Jesus, you cannot do it. Apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot do what Paul is calling for you to do. I, I've told, there's been several times where Noah and I have had some conversations and, and maybe he's been struggling with something. Maybe it's a schoolwork or something or, or just a situation. He says, you know, Dad, I can't do it. And my response is, you're right, you can't. That's why you need to turn to Christ alone and ask him to do it in you. So, children, you need to be praying for Jesus' help. You need to be praying for the Spirit to fill you. You need to be in the Word. You need to put your hope in Jesus' goodness and righteousness and not your own. And so when you succeed, children, you don't point to yourself and go, Wow, look at what I did. I was so nice. I was so obedient. But instead, you point to Jesus alone. And you praise God for what Jesus is doing in you. Instead of bringing attention to yourself for what you think you did well. And when you fail, you don't just try to do better next time. You run to Jesus. You ask him for forgiveness. You ask him to pick you up. You ask him to do a work in you that you cannot do on your own. Jesus plus nothing. That's the gospel and that's this text. The gospel... The gospel is the key to children doing what Paul's calling you to do. But Paul also speaks to parents here. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now the first thing you'll notice from this verse 4 is that Paul shifts. He earlier said children obey your parents, which clearly involves both mom and dad. But here he singles it down to fathers. Fathers do not provoke your children to anger. Meaning that the head of the home, dad, is the one on whom the brunt of the responsibility falls. It does not mean he does it alone. It does not mean he trains his children alone. But it does mean that he and his wife are a team and he is the leader on that team. So both parents bear responsibility, but dads bear the brunt of it. And dads are the one called to lead. And the first thing we notice here is that parents must raise their children without embittering harshness. Parents must raise up children without embittering harshness. Do not provoke your children to anger. Paul starts with a negative command as he calls parents to exercise self-control and restraint and gentleness. This was not the norm in Paul's day and age. Handy heaven... Handy, Heavy-handedness was the norm in Paul's day and age. Matter of fact, it may have been the norm in your life. Maybe your dad was a heavy-handed guy. It may be the norm in your families now. Because I think a lot of dads have the tendency to lean towards heavy-handedness. 
Fathers, we must remember the reason that, and, and you can go back, and, and some people will say if you divide the Ten Commandments in half, you've got the first four, which are about loving God, and the last six are about loving man, which is true, except that the Hebrews never divided the, the, the Ten Commandments four and six. They understood there being five on each tablet. And so the honor your parents commandment actually comes at the end of the section on honoring God and on loving God. Why? It's a hinge. It's a hinge between those first four commandments about honoring God and loving God and the rest about honoring people and loving people because while a child is still in the home, the parent is God's representative to them. So for them to disobey a parent is tantamount to directly disobeying God. Them not honoring their parents is just like not honoring God. That's why the penalty in the Old Testament was so severe for children who disobeyed parents and dishonored them. It was the same penalties for those who blasphemed God. Very severe penalties. So in the New Testament, New Covenant context, parents, you still are that representative to your children of God. They will learn about God from you. And if you are harsh, they will learn that God is harsh or they'll believe that God is harsh. And if you are passive and indifferent, they will learn that God is passive and indifferent. So Paul starts with this negative command calling on parents not to raise up children with embittering harshness. He says not to provoke them to anger. One translation puts it this way. Do not goad your children to resentment. That's a good way to put it. Your translation may say exasperate. The parallel passage in Colossians says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Dads, do you feel the weight of this passage? Every time you blow it, and we all blow it. Do you not feel the weight of this passage? When you've blown up and gotten angry at your kids, do you not feel the weight of this? When you've not kept a promise and God's word is filled with promises and you haven't kept a promise, we haven't kept promises, do you feel the weight of this text? As our actions can goad our sons and daughters into sinful anger and destructive discouragement, Here are some ways that can happen. With heavy-handed strictness, unreasonableness, failure to give your kids a voice in the home, fault-finding, arbitrariness, just you get mad when you want to get mad and you don't when you don't, unfairness, bullying. There's lots of dads that are just bullies. They maybe have grown up all their life being bullied and now they've got someone smaller and weaker to them that they can now bully. Bullying, uncontrolled rage, sarcasm, demeaning comments. Oh man, this one makes me feel sick. But inconsistency in the home. Is God an inconsistent God? Or just flat out neglect? There are some dads that just won't take the leadership mantle. And they just neglect their home and neglect their children. This should be heavy on the hearts of all the dads, myself included, here this morning. 
Parents, dads in particular, we must not goad our children into sin. Matthew 18, 6 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Do we feel the weight of that? And after this heavy negative, Paul gives us some positive exhortations. The next thing he says is that parents must raise up children with nourishing care. Parents must raise up children with nourishing care. It says here to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The phrase here, bring them up, literally means to nourish them. It's the exact same verb used in Ephesians 5.29, where Paul, speaking of husbands and their love for their wives and Christ's love for the church, he says this, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That's the same, same verb, nourish. So we are to nourish our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That would actually be a more accurate translation. To nourish your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Like a tender plant, a child is to be nourished. Okay, I am not a green thumb. Our family, we're just not really green thumbs. Plants may last a little while in our house. And we we may do all that we think we can do to, 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 to rescue them, but... For whatever reason, within a week, they're pretty much dead. Okay? And so that's just, we're not good at nourishing and nurturing plants. And that's kind of the image here. Is that there is a neglect that fathers can be about where that child just withers. But there's a nourishing type of parenting that we are called to give our children. This passage leaves no room for the macho image of a dad that we sometimes have in our mind. A man's man who just says, ah, just get over it. That's not the image here of a real father. A manly man is a man who's tender and nourishing to his children. And again, this takes masculinity to a revolutionary level. This is not the way the Roman fathers or even the Hebrew fathers trained their children. Calvin translates this passage. He says, let them be fondly cherished. Deal gently with them. Nourishing also implies consistent hard work. I believe the reason we are brown thumbs in our home is because we just don't put in consistent hard work into saving the plants. All right? They just kind of, they just, we forget they're there and they, they die. Well, nourishing implies simply by the verb itself that there's going to be hard work, consistent work going on in the home. It doesn't happen overnight. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, If parents give as much thought to the rearing of their children as they do to the rearing of animals and flowers, the situation we live in would be much different. So parents are to raise up children without embittering harshness. Parents must raise up children with nourishing care. And parents must raise up children with firm and consistent correction and teaching. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline here implies correction chastening, punishment even. But it can also mean just training. It's kind of the same way we use the word discipline in the English. So discipline can actually mean punishment punishment and correction. But it can also mean like an athlete who goes out and just works hard and, and punishes his body so that he can, he can compete in the next event that he's involved in. And so that's what this picture here of discipline it, it involves. It, it's really more associated with the actions 
Then the word instruction literally means to place before the mind. It can include warnings, corrections, admonishments. But it usually refers to intellectual teaching and preparation. It's associated with the mind. So the first word is associated with actions and behaviors. The second word is associated with intellect and the mind and what you teach your children up here. So we see correcting and guiding of a child's actions as well as the teaching and admonishing of a child's mind. And what is our tool for that? It's quite simple. This is why there's not that much about parenting in the Scriptures because it's very, very simple. Those exact Two words Paul uses elsewhere in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. He uses the same two words that he talks about raising up and nourishing a child in this passage about what the Scriptures are useful for. Therefore, we can take that to mean that this text, right, this is our textbook for parenting right here. The Word. And if you recall, this text is tied way back in Ephesians 5 to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? By reading the Word of God and by prayer. Paul doesn't go beyond this. He doesn't lay out a system. He doesn't give you a curriculum, if you will. He doesn't lay out a ten-step plan, a one, two, three, easy parenting. He just gives us these words. He doesn't say when or how or where, anything. So there's a general nature to what Paul's teaching fathers here, establishing how this is to be done in the home. But clearly, Paul here leaves room for parents to do this however it fits their home. For fathers to bring this discipline and instruction to their home in the best way that fits their home. We can learn a lot from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 giving us clues as to how to do this in the home. I would also say that although this text clearly uh, points to the parental responsibility, primarily the dads, to do this, it is also being done in the context of the greater family. This is being read to the church family, the community of faith. These children that are in the Lord are part of a bigger family, and God has gifted people in the church. We know that from Ephesians 4. God has gifted people in the church to make disciples. And therefore, if children are part of the larger family of the church, we should expect, just as other people's giftedness ministers to us as parents, that we should expect other people in the church to minister to our children as well. It takes a church to raise a child. Why? Because the parent's goal and the church's goal are the same thing. And it's not good behavior. It's disciples. Disciples. The church is to make disciples. And parents, you are to make disciples. Your primary task of discipleship right now while you have them under your roof is your children. Which leads me to my final point. Parents cannot raise up children apart from the gospel. So we're back to the gospel. Parents cannot Raise up children apart from the gospel. It says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, morality is not our goal. Making disciples of the Lord is our goal. When Paul tells us that that this discipline and instruction is of the Lord, he means of Jesus Christ. Every time you see the word, or most of the time you see the word Lord in the New Testament, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our goal then is to teach them Jesus. Not WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's easy parenting. That's, that's kind of the flavor of the month. That's, you can find that on Amazon. There probably is a book called Parenting WWJD. That's just morality. What would Jesus do? What you need to teach them is what Jesus has already done. And if they are in Christ, he has done it on their behalf. And if they're not in Christ, plead with them. Teach them that they need to come to the cross because Jesus has accomplished something. It's not about what will Jesus do, therefore act like Jesus. You can't do that. You can't do WWJD. I wish the bracelet said WWJD and had a big X through it because we can't do that. Nobody can WWJD apart from the work of God in his heart through the Spirit. No one. And so we drive our kids to the gospel, the cross. We cannot discipline sin out of our kids. You cannot spank it out. You may try. You will not spank out sin. If it were that easy, we would just have spanking paddles at the back to take home. Everyone grab a spanking paddle and come home with, come back with sinless kids next week. You can't yell it out. You can't ground it out. We therefore point them to the only place where the sins can actually be expunged which is the cross. Parents, do we forget this? I think part of the reason we get so angry is our kids keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, and we keep getting in their face and say, come on, man. Don't you get it? How many times do I have to tell you this? I mean, have y'all said that? How many times do I have to tell you? If you're not telling them to go to the cross, then you're going to keep telling them over and over and over again, and it's going to have no effect. How many times do I have to tell you? Is that what Jesus says? Is that how God comes to us? How many times? When are you finally going to get it right? When are you finally going to get enough check-off boxes checked off so that you're good enough to come into heaven? When are you going to get your act together? That is not how our Father approaches us. Our Father gives us the Son. And says to us through his law, you cannot, you cannot keep it together. Just go to the Old Testament. Go to the Ten Commandments. Go to the Sermon on the Mount and let it crush you. You'll see you cannot just do it. You need someone who will do it on your behalf. You need to put your hope in that someone. What Paul is telling us to do is to teach truth teach grace, teach gospel, teach Christ, not morality and systems. Here's what Paul has to say about systems and morality. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. One of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture right there. Let us not teach our kids to hang on to rubbish when the riches of grace are available to them. If you just teach them morality, you're just setting them up to hang on to rubbish when the riches of His grace are over here. The behavior will change as they put their hope in Christ. Show them Christ. Don't set morality before your children. Set Christ before your children. Show them Christ. Model it. If they see you succeed, point to Christ. If they see you fail, let them see you running to Christ. Let me say that again. If they see you succeed, point to Christ. And if they see you fail, you better let them see you running to Christ. Oh, but parents, we cannot do this on our own. We too must run to the cross daily. We must seek the Spirit's infilling. The way to raise a child is on our knees. In the Word, seeking God's mercy. You cannot be filled with the Spirit, and I've said it six weeks in a row, apart from a consistent time in this Word and prayer. And therefore, you cannot be a parent the way you want to be a parent. It's just that simple. You can spend 20 years trying to prove me wrong if you want to. You cannot be the parent you want to be if you're not in this book. How are you filled with the Spirit? By the meditation upon, the, the, the saturation of this Word into your heart, into your life, and by prayer. And you're filled with the Spirit, and only then can the Spirit have His way in your heart. So we are to raise children on our knees in the Word, seeking God's mercy, pleading God's grace upon us to cover our failures and to ensure our successes. The gospel is our only hope for parenting. The gospel, this is the gospel. Not only have your past mistakes, God no longer sees them in the sense that he sees the righteousness of Christ. He also sees perfect parenting down the road. Because if you have the righteousness of Christ that's been placed over you, that's what God sees. And we live in that reality. And we live in the reality that we are being made into who we already are. Righteous, holy, sanctified people. And the Spirit is working in us. If the Spirit is not working in you to make you more holy, then the Spirit may not be working in you for other reasons. You may not be in the Lord. The gospel changes everything, including our parenting, how a child acts in the home. The gospel is our hope for transformed relationships. It's our only hope. You can read those 60,000 books on Amazon if you want to. But it boils down to this. Children obeying in the Lord and parents teaching the truths of the Lord. Boils down to that. That's the book right there. We can only father because we have a heavenly father who loves us and gave his son to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Parents, we have been given a sacred stewardship. These children, they are people made in the image of God, entrusted to our care. Imagine if someone came and brought you the Mona Lisa. 
the real one. He said, listen, I want you to take care of this for the next 50, 60 years. Whoa. All right, let's reduce it down to just 18 years. I want you to take care of this for the next 18 years. Would you take that responsibility seriously? You've been given a much greater masterpiece than the Mona Lisa. You've been given little children made in the image of God. They are to be treated with precious care. They are entrusted to our care so that we might image God to them in the hope that they would know Christ and be transformed and thus no longer bear the image of the man of dust, but bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. That's our goal. I didn't do very good with Dunga, and I've made plenty of mistakes with Noah and Olivia and Emma Kate. But glory be to God that I look back on my mistakes and trust His grace to cover my failures and ask in hope that God will grant me the grace to be a better dad in the future. It's the grace of God. It's the gospel. It's my only hope. It's my only hope. I'm not hoping in the next Dobson book. I'm not hoping in the next Super Nanny episode. I'm hoping in the grace of God that I might be the dad God wants me to be. So let's pray right now. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Let's close with a word of prayer and a song. This is a time of response. If you don't have children and you're here this morning, you may have just sort of tuned out, but I pray that you wouldn't. I pray that these words have gone to your heart. There's so much I didn't know about the gospel before I became a parent. I wish I'd have known so much more. Heavenly Father, I come to you right now, and I thank you, Lord, for the parents that are in this room. I thank you, Lord, for those who are not parents who are here in this room. I thank you, Lord, that your word is so comprehensive that Paul doesn't leave out the little kids and he doesn't leave out the parents. Something that we would just assume that, well, obviously kids should obey the parents. Paul takes time to get into this and to talk about it and to point it to the cross. Every relationship has to be pointed to the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for your word. Because if it wasn't for passages like this, I would be where I was, oh, I don't know, five, six years ago, convinced that I just needed a better system of morality in my home. So God, help us, Lord, to go to the cross. When we fail, parents and children, when we fail, let us run to the cross. And when we succeed, let us not be so boastful as to take any credit for it, but let us point to Jesus. Let them see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Lord, make this what's happening in the hearts and homes of Harbins. And Father, be with us this morning as we respond in song. May you hear this sacrifice of praise. Lord, as we bring our offerings and our tithes and our prayer requests, Lord, may this be a time of genuine response to your word and not just going through the motions. And Lord, if there be anybody here this morning that just would like to talk a little bit more about this gospel, Maybe they thought Christianity is just about morality and rules. And this whole concept of gospel and having someone who 
kept the rules for us is foreign to them. But God, I pray that they'd be willing to come forward and to speak with me or maybe one of the other men of the church, Redeemer. So God, I pray this time of response would be pleasing to you. And Lord, that you be glorified in all that we do this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would for this time of response. Bring your prayer request if you would. Bring your praises. Bring your praises of who God is and what He's done in your life. And bring your offerings and your tithes. And let's give this time to the Lord. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.